fear is not real. The only place that fear can exist is in our thoughts of the future. It is a product of our imagination, causing us to fear things that do not at present and may not ever exist. That is near insanity, Katar. Now do not misunderstand me. Danger is very real, but fear is a choice. We are all telling ourselves a story. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Welcome to the machine, my son, and the means to escape it. Welcome to that clip from the Scientology film, After Earth. Though Will Smith kills it with a crucial message, I'll keep hammering away at like a Midsommar senior citizen culling. And I hammered it hard in our recent Finding Hermes with Duncan Trussell. Fear is not real. Fear is the mind killer. All fear is a want, as the Sedona method says. A want for control, for safety, for approval. And all these wants are rooted in our fear of death, unconscious and instinctual. A persistent delusion that we were ever truly in control of our meat sack lives. Once we let go of fear, we fully embrace existence and see the whole of the moon. We let go. We have a near life experience. We were never in control but we can allow higher forces to take control. Fear is the mind killer. Train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. Fear is the great weapon the Archons are using against us to create this divide and conquer culture, this circular firing line society this fragmenting of the collective consciousness. No more, we say, we freaks and outcasts, we of the broken places. No more, as we run with those searching for the truth and avoid those who have found it. Where hope dies, imagination must live. We left our fear behind, along with the coding instilled by hating angels and their chief archon. We are decoys brought into the world by an unloving God and driven to destroy ourselves by the uncertainty he creates. Do you know what is one of the best ways to defeat fear? As I also mentioned in the last Finding Hermes, Self-knowledge. Once you go beyond your egoic constructs, your shadow projections, your complexes, your cultural conditioning, and your societal programming, 
You'll find a part of you that is timeless, eternal. A part of you that needs no control, for it extends beyond your monkey manifestation. Is everywhere at once. A part of you that is pure imagination, pure potential, and pure boundless wonder. Awareness incarnate. So go inward to find your sleeping God. All the gods, all the heavens, all the worlds are within us. They are magnified dreams. And what dreams are, are manifestations in image form of the energies of the body in conflict with each other. As the Gospel of Thomas, saying number 111 says, The heavens and the earth will roll up before you. The living who came from the living will know neither fear nor death. For it is said, Whoever has self-knowledge, the world cannot contain them. To live is to risk it all. Otherwise, you're just an inert chunk of randomly assembled molecules drifting wherever the universe blows you. Beyond self-knowledge, another important ingredient of Gnosis is being a spiritual warrior, an ardent theurgist, going to war with that wickedness in high places. This means a robust ego and metaphysical discipline and a Sauron-like third eye. This means moving away from orthodox religions and new age carnivals that cuck you more than comfort you. Remove that fire in your soul so you cannot choose ecstasy over entertainment. Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. How do you do this? Well, well, well. Our astral guests in this eternal now will show the way. That is Stefan Verstappen, author of The Master Guide to the Way of the Warrior. Get ready for an incredible blend of Gurdjieff, martial arts wisdom, Eastern shamanism, and what is best in those of us who know that the awakening of an individual is a cosmic rebellion. Stefan's message is the killer of the mind killer that is fear. Keto? Keto? His ideas might be essential to reversing a crumbling society of soy boy doctrines and ass-clencher dogma. If people can't control their own emotions, then they have to start trying to control other people's behavior. I myself are taking all of this seriously. As some of you already know, I've left my day gig to focus fully on Aeon Byte, finding Hermes, voiceover services, and other projects. I had to accept my meat sack wasn't in control, and something greater was leading me to a near-life experience. Naturally, fear wants to rise from the sewers of my conditioning. Tell me I should settle for security, approval, or control. Play it safe and not take any risks. 
that soon my three young children will be starving and I'll be living under a bridge along with Anthony Kiedis and a million Twitter trolls. Ask yourself, what's more terrifying, fear or the frightened? But no, it's time. And this is part of my self-knowledge that will allow ecstasy to rise. We'll see the earth and the heavens roll up. As the cool cliche goes, everything you ever wanted is sitting on the other side of fear. Those without swords can still die upon them. I fear neither death nor pain. What do you fear, my lady? A cage. Your incredible support and kind words are part of what has fueled this, and I can't thank you enough. Of course, I'll say please support this Red Pill Cafeteria more than ever. And if anything, please let the world know that the Gnostic heresy matters. That being awake matters. That being average no longer matters. Tell the world about the virtual Alexandria, where the dreams of ancient mystics are not forgotten where innovation and invention and art and history's greatest melting pot is more than a potential, can be realized in this terra damnata. Tell them about Aeon Bite. Such a disappointment. We can make anything we fancy in this arena of infinite promise, and this is what we come up with? Weapons? War? Surely we have more imagination than that. Regardless, expect some coolest shit content from your host, Miguel Connor. Expect risks and expect higher controversy. Expect men to still have nipples and warm leatherettes. Expect more tools for your self-knowledge. And if we meet under a bridge one day, broken and starving, at least we can be the Joker and the Thief, and we'll still find some way out of here. You are amazing, and you can do so many wonders. All you have to do is know yourself. I know who I am! I'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude! Remember that scene at the end of the film Amadeus, where Salieri is pushed around in his wheelchair? He claims to be the patron saint of mediocrity, offering blessings to the madmen in the mental ward. All because God, (coughs) the Demiurge, cursed most of humanity with a lack of talent. Or should we say a lack of seeing that everyone has talent? That's a worse fate than anything I could do. <laughs> that was not Mozart laughing, Father. That was God. That was God laughing at me through that through that obscene giggle. You are not average. Don't believe Salieri. That's a lie. We are all sparks of the divine. The tears of Sophia fallen into a world that never cared for us. 
so we'll get our vengeance by caring so much for the world. As Gnostic Bishop Rosamonde Miller wrote, At birth we are dropped into a combat zone. Our mission? To keep brilliant and alive the luminous spark of light encased in our three-dimensional uniform. To keep our humanity in the midst of fear. To remain compassionate and without judgment. Never profiteering from war or engaging in acts of cruelty. Never forget who you were before being born, for you will return to it after you die. We must not only leave this earth with an honorable discharge, but full of medals of heroism above and beyond the call of duty. Never lose the best part of your humanity. Never forget who you are. A beautiful ah! Ah! What? Ah! What? Ah! Kato! Ah! You imbecile, not now, Kato! must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear is gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. This is the Aeon Byte interview. And with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Stefan Verstappen to discuss his book, A Master's Guide to the Way of the Warrior. And as you probably know, a lot of Gurdjieff, oh, you heretics. Stefan, thanks for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure, Miguel. I feel like we're brothers. I've been following you for so long, and I listen to all, well, almost all your shows. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, it's a pleasure for me to be here. Oh, pleasure is all ours. I really enjoyed your book. I got a lot out of it. And I think your message is very relevant today, as we will discuss in many areas. But first, we have also the pleasure of having with us and always keeping us company, the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, I don't know. I neither like nor dislike the state of my being at this point. <laughs> Somebody who's read Stefan's book, huh? <laughs> no, <laughs> I just read the notes. <laughs> no. Glad to be here. Oops, I just revealed myself. Yeah, for the audience, it's a good book. But uh, Stefan, at the end of the book, there's some great sections with some great listicles for you who uh, read BuzzFeed or whatever that uh, will help you out, especially. But I would definitely suggest read the whole book so you get the full impact. But before we get into that, Stefan, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey or your hitchhiking into the esoterica. Well, like uh, many of us, I had what I think it was Colin Wilson co coined the term an enlightenment experience. 
And uh, I was 12 years old and I had this enlightenment experience because up until I was that age, I was, uh, I considered myself to be a scientist. I was really into science. I was a, an inventor, a mad genius. And then something happened when I was 12. I was in Eindhoven in Holland, and it was right between Christmas and New Year's. And I woke up in the middle of the night with the sudden urge to escape into the darkness. <laughs> so I, I, I crept out of the, I was staying with my uncle at the time. I crept out and I began wandering the dark streets of Eindhoven at two o'clock in the morning. And when I say enlightenment experience, it wasn't really such a, like a metaphysical supernatural experience where I saw angels or Jesus come out of the clouds. It was rather the realization that I am a living entity on this planet. That was it. And, but it was so clear to me, you are alive. This is your life. From now on, you can control your own life and life. The purpose for life is to experience it and to learn from it. And, so from that point on, I, even though I still love science and I, and I still follow it, but that took me on the path to the esoteric and to the spiritual. Now, I was still young at the time, and so I fell into the usual traps, you know, a la C.S. Lewis's Pilgrim's Regress, um, such as occultism, witchcraft, demonology. Um, then I graduated. I, I really studied hypnosis for a while and uh, amazed all my friends in middle school by hypnotizing them. Um, then I went into astral projection or OBE, out of body experience. And I learned to master astral projection. Now I believe they call it uh, remote viewing. But in those days, it was you know astral projection. So you your astral body would leave your physical body and can fly around the room, fly across the city, travel to different dimensions. And that was fun for a while until I ended up in a dark place full of archons. And that scared the living bejesus out of me. And after that, I didn't go anymore. <laughs> but there's a certain technique to it. There's a trick to, to astral projection. There's a vibration. And just the memory of this vibration, it's like somebody holding a, you know, one of those hand massage vibrators against your head. It's almost painful, but not, not really painful, but unpleasant. And then boom, you pop out of your body and you can start flying around. But, you know, I went to a dark place and uh, another friend of mine went to a dark place, but when he came back, he was never the same. Mm -hmm. So, okay. I thought this was, you know, I better leave this alone for a while. Then I became a Rosicrucian um, and not the AMORC, the, the one that they have there in the States, the American Organization of Rosicrucians. This was another one. It was a little bit better, I think, but I've read all the books and the Rosicrucians, likewise, this organization heavily emphasized traveling out of your physical body in the astral body and to visit these various planes in order to garner wisdom and knowledge from these planes. Um, then I went through the Hindu phase. You know, I studied yoga. I studied the Tibetan book of the dead and the Tibetan book of the great liberation and the diamond sutras. And I can't even remember how many books I've read, Miguel. I, I mean, I went through it all. I went through all the holy books I could get my, my hands on everything from the sutras of Pantanjali to 
to Lao Tzu, the Tao Te Ching, to uh, uh, Musashi's The Book of Five Rings. To I've read it all. I've, I just consumed all these holy books like no tomorrow. And then I came across Gurdjieff. And what I found with, you know, to this, now if you ask me about all these holy books, I, I say I piss on these holy books. I really do. I mean, I've never, at the time I was taking it seriously. I was young. I was 15, 16, 17, 19. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Right. And I'm reading all these, you know, mystical tomes. And I mean, everything from the Christian mystics to the, to the Manicheans to, yeah, I tried the Gnostics. I tried the Gnostic material, but this was before it was cleaned up a lot, right? They, right. they cleaned it up and tried to make it more legible. So the very early translations of uh, of the uh, Mag Hammadi scrolls, oh my God, what a oh mess. God, who, can, yeah. who can make sense of that, right? I couldn't make sense of it. <laughs> so I went through all of that, and then I settled on Gurdjieff, because Gurdjieff was, he said things that, all the other holy books didn't say they weren't, you know, some of them touched upon it a little bit. I mean, there are some correlations between Gurdjieff's philosophy and other philosophies. And actually there are a lot more now that I've in my, in my senior years, I look back on it and I, I, I realized now that Gurdjieff got a lot of his material from existent philosophies of the time, you know, for example, the Stoics, um, a lot of his stuff is Stoicism. Um, but it was something that was finally completely different, but also not only completely different, it was more pragmatic. You know, how to increase the level of your being. This was really important because it, it's not just how do you become smarter? How do you become smarter? How to lose 20 pounds in two weeks? You know, it's not just about that. It's your entire being on this planet, how to improve it and improve all of it, your intellectual center, your heart, your emotions, your physic, physical body. And so then I started joining Gurdjieff groups. And of course, I read every book Gurdjieff wrote and every book all of his disciples wrote, you know, uh, A.R. Uh, Orange and P.D. Ospensky, and uh, I, I read them all. Now, and it was Gurdjieff that inspired me to study martial arts. Because what struck me about Gurdjieff, one of the things that struck me was the sacred dancing, the, 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 the Sufi mystics and the whirling dervishes, and that movement was a way of attaining enlightenment. Now, back in 1970s Toronto, surprisingly, there were no dervish sects. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> um, you know, and there weren't any fourth-way schools. Well, I joined a couple, but they turned out to be frauds, you know. Uh, um, you know the guy I'm talking about. Uh, so I thought, well, listen, I've always been an autodidact. I, I've always taught myself, and, and I will apply my scientific mind to recreating the mystical dances and I thought, I thought martial arts would be a way to do that because of the elaborate and intense, uh, what we call forms or kata, which are, you know, you have to memorize this choreography and it's very specific. Each posture has to be exactly thus and each movement has to be 
carried out exactly this way, which reminded me of the temple dancing or the or the Sufi dancing that Gurdjieff talked about. So I started off with uh, Taekwondo and karate and jujitsu, but I really became attracted to Kung Fu because of, you know, first of all, the mysticism surrounding Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kung Fu was originated by a Buddhist monk called Bodharma or Damo in Chinese. Uh, and he was a warrior on top of it all. And uh, his goal was to teach the monks not to fall asleep during meditation. So he taught them moving meditation, which evolved into modern day Kung Fu. So I think I was on the right track. So here's another example of the origin of this uh, uh, style or this art is again in the mystical and the ability for the body through movement to experience higher states of being. So I investigated Kung Fu and then I ended up going down to Chinatown. I really enjoyed my experiences at the, at the, you know, the oldest Kung Fu club in Toronto. Um, I was one of two other white people that were, that went there. Everybody was afraid to go down there because they were associated with the triads um, but there was no triads down there. And then I began to explore other areas of Kung Fu. For example, Kung Fu has a lot in common with shamanism, specifically the animal styles. And the more I began to explore that, the more I realized that, I'm, yeah, I think I'm on the right track. I think I can recreate what Gurdjieff had taught through dance I could teach through Kung Fu. And so that is the path I've been on ever since. Wow, what a wonderful story. And uh, glad you have been on this path. And yeah, I mean, Gurdjieff certainly, I don't know if we can call him an innovator. I think he's like you. He took a look at what was going on in his culture and how uh, spiritually and psychically and physically dead people were, were after the the ravage of the Victorian age and uh, enlightenment uh, running away and also but still with the strong pull of orthodox religions and he said like you said he was going to get practical and grab onto the wisdom of those uh, niche spiritualities around them and really make them work. Wake up people. That's what Gurdjieff wanted to do. An awakened person knows what they need to do with their body and their lives. And I think uh, your book is also a reminder or a wake up call for what's going on today. I feel as people are sort of uh, spiritually, physically, and mentally confused in this 21st century. And I like what you wrote, uh, Stefan, you wrote enlightenment. It's not for pussies. <laughs> <laughs> and I, th- and, and then it reminded me of a quote by um, Jay Krishnamurti in his book, uh, freedom from the known. And it always stuck out to me, but uh, Krishnamurti was against he did not like meditation because according to him, it made people as limber as asparagus. In other words, people <laughs> were easier to manipulate, to accept. And it always made me think he's probably right. Um, 
sometimes maybe religion maybe in the east has made so that we are softer and easier to control just like the bible says do unto caesar and paul talks about or the pseudo paul talks about uh tyrants are put in place by god and all that so i always think yeah i would not be surprised that much of our religion and even new age spirituality is here to make us soft and i like your idea that no uh our spirituality should be something powerful and passionate, right? Like you said, make us alive. Yeah, no, I, I, I firmly believe that. Uh, we know now um, in our in our uh, wiser years that all these religions <laughs> are just means of control. It's exactly. just it, it's just a bullshit story to manipulate people. <laughs> um, you know, for example, I have a seizing hatred. By the way, my new phrase is. Hate is good. <laughs> if you don't hate, you're not alive because there's a lot of things very worthy of hate. Exactly. And one of those things are the Abrahamic religions. My God, the destruction. Those three religions have raked on the world, not only physically and mentally, but spiritually. The Look what's pole. going on in Canada with those churches and all those bodies of those uh, native indigenous people, children. Oh, drop in the bucket to what the world, drop in the bucket to what these religions have done to us. And so, yeah, no, I really hate them all. I hate them all. Judaism, Christianity, Islam. They're, they're you know, they're Arconic mind parasites. Again, you know, the uh, to quote Colin Wilson, he knew what he was talking about, mind parasites. That's what these things are, you know, and any exposure to these religions will weaken your soul. Um, so, no, to get back to the, the vitality, that was a, a word the Greeks often used, you know, the vitality of a spiritual path, that's what we need in order to get through what we are living through right now, which let's make no mistakes for people. We are at the end of civilization right now. The next five years will determine whether or not we maintain some semblance of humanity or whether we plunge into a thousand year dark age of slavery and misery. This is Ragnarok. This is the Agreed. great battle at the end of the world. Now, you can't go into this battle by meditating and having happy thoughts. <laughs> Just crystals and all that stuff. Huh? Magic affirmations. <laughs> and, yeah. Well, listen, I have an affirmation uh, and, um, that I, I sometimes share, which people like. Uh, you want to hear it? Sure, yeah, yeah. I like enlightenment. It's not for pussies. And hate okay. is good. Let's hear the third one. <laughs> All right. I am a warrior. I am fearless. I'm ruthless. And I'm relentless. Each day I become stronger. Each day I become wiser. And each day I become immortal. Mm, I love it. Love it. And well, well, that's what right. we need. We need, you know, a kind of a philosophy to get through this because you know we've been under attack our society has been under attack for a while you know at least 100 years but more likely going on 3000 years we've been under attack by these arconic influences 
And everything they do is designed to weaken us, enfeeble us, make us dumber, uh, make us more compliant and passive and agreeable. And this is how you control humanity. But humans aren't meant to be that way. Humans are meant to be vital, living uh, creatures with passion and strength and intelligence and self-reliance. And they have done everything in their power to destroy that in us. Every you know modern movement, every movie, every TV show, and and pop music, and it goes on and on and on, all designed to make us weak and feeble. That's why I'm promoting this, you know, what I call the path of the warrior, which is a spiritual path. It's not just you know taking martial arts, or it's not just going to the gun range. That's part of it. That's part of it. You should do that anyways, sure. But the real center or the real purpose of a spiritual warrior path is to make you strong and vital so that you can survive what's coming, so that you can actually fight back against the evil. And I've studied all the other, you know, I did it all the from you know yoga and transcendental meditation. I've tried it all. None of these spiritual paths will save you from what's coming the only thing that's going to save you from what's coming is the path of a warrior which makes you strong not just physically strong but spiritually strong yeah it should be mentioned yeah you're not telling people to go out and buy a samurai sword or i guess you are but i think the the, the central <laughs> point as and you argue this very well in your book stefan you talk about the great warriors throughout history, the, the samurai who were uh, embedded. They, they didn't just train to fight, but they believed in meditation and art, the Spanish swordsmen and poetry, the Knights Templar who spent hours a day in piety and praying and so forth. I mean, these great warriors in our history were, uh, they were balanced human beings, both in their spiritual, mental and physical aspects. Exactly. And they were balanced in the sense, uh, and again, this is from the fourth way, in that they exercised and developed all of their centers. Now, uh, I'll just do a quick recap on what, what the fourth way is for people that might not know. Sure. Um, Goethe said that humans have four centers, and two of them are kind of linked together, so you can actually say they have three centers. We have the moving instinctive center, you have the emotional center, and then you have the intellectual center. And this is similar, but not exactly like the chakras, you know, in, in yoga. Um, but we, and there's also a physical explanation for that in that, in effect, we do have three brains. Every human has three brains. You know, we have the old reptilian brain, the pons. And then we have the hippocampus, which is sort of the emotional brain. And then on top of that, wrapped over everything at the last minute is the intellectual center. So we do have three brains. Now, Gurdjieff said, most people will be born with an affinity to function in predominantly in one of those centers. So some people will be born in their you know, predominant center will be the moving instinctive. And so these people will become, you know, athletes or dancers or musicians because it's, it's all those uh, activities are part of your moving center. 
other people will be predominantly in the emotional center. And so their lives will be revolve around, uh, you know, being a help to the community and to art and beauty and cooking and uh, anything that deals with humanity and relationships and, you know, sacrificing to make a better world for others, charity. Um, those are all facets of the emotional center. And then finally, it's the intellectual center. And everybody upon hearing these three centers likes to assume that they are the intellectual center, <laughs> which is what I thought, too. I thought, oh, well, of course, I am the intellectual center. Uh, but actually, I'm the moving instinctive center. But never mind. The intellectual center, of course, deals with mathematics and science and engineering and, and so on. Everybody gets the idea of that. Now, what Gurdjieff dis distinguished was that each of these three centers has its own spiritual path. So there are spiritual exercises for those who are in the moving instinctive uh, centers, such as Hatha Yoga, um, where you're, you know, you're doing the postures and, and, uh, and deprivation of the body through fasting and through uncomfortable uh, living conditions, you know, living uh, like a hermit and a stoic. Then there is the, 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 the path of the heart or bhakti yoga, where, you know, your life is revolves around doing good deeds and compassion and helping the sick and the injured and spreading love and joy and beauty. And so there's a spiritual path specifically for those type of people. And then finally, the intellectuals have their own path. Uh, it possibly called Raja Yoga. And again, their spiritual path involves a lot of visualizations and um, a lot of mental discipline. And each of those paths can lead to enlightenment, provided you, you know, you're in a good school. But Gurdjieff said, the only difference between that and the fourth way is that the fourth way is also, he said that in order to follow the first three, path, first three paths, you would have to separate yourself from society. So you would have to find a temple or a monastery where you could go and train. So you go up in the mountains and you train and in one of those three paths and hopefully you reach enlightenment. But Goethe said, no, what we are going to do is we are going to train, but we're not going to train in isolation. We are going to train and develop our spiritual path while living amongst humanity, everyday life. Um, there's a saying from the book, The Razor's Edge by Somerset Maughan, a great book. I love that book. And um, the protagonist, Larry, he's up in the mountains. Uh, he went to India to search for enlightenment. And they gave him some books to read. He went up to a little cave up in the mountains. And he's sitting there in the cave. And uh, after months of reading the holy books, which I piss on, uh, he finally came to the conclusion that it's easy to be a holy man on a mountain. Because you're separated. You know, you're not dealing right. with all of life's travails. You know, try being a holy man and uh, sitting in two-hour stop-and-go traffic on your commute to work. <laughs> now be a holy man. The Dalai Lama or the Pope have never had to do that. So. <laughs> exactly. You know, 
and, the, and it's absolutely true. So, and this is this is the problem I have with a lot of these holy people, you know, the you know all these gurus, and I've met my fair share of gurus, Miguel, <laughs> and they're all frauds. Every anybody that puts himself off as a guru automatically, in my mind, is a fraud. Uh, if you have wisdom to share, that's one thing, but to be a guru, you're a fraud. But I'll tell you, none of these frauds. Um, with all their uh, meditation techniques, um, I'll tell you meditation techniques. Put them in the ring with me. Now, I can stand in a fighting ring with you, and I won't lose my composure. I won't lose my focus. I won't lose my wa. All these, all, all these, uh, you know, transcendental meditation and holy this. Guarantee the first time I punched them in the nose, <laughs> yeah, their holiness is out the window, right? Yeah, it's what we call, I think, spiritual bypassing, where you try to go into the cave. But as we're talking, the battle is here. The battle is getting stuck in traffic, dealing with your family during holidays, uh, <laughs> not letting society uh, propagandize you. That's where the real battle is, down on the streets, the gritty. Exactly. And so if you have to separate yourself from all of that in order to you know, maintain a few moments of peace and, <laughs> and centeredness, then, well, I, I don't know how strong your spiritual path is, but it's not very strong. So Gertrude recommended practicing in society. And then the other thing he did was you practice all three paths. You practice the moving instinctive, you practice the emotional, and you practice the intellectual. Now we get back to the Japanese samurai. And one of my greatest heroes is a Japanese swordsman named Miyamoto Musashi. And he lived in the 16th century, and he is, hands down, Japan's most famous swordsman. He was one of these guys that traveled the countryside, going from martial arts school to martial arts school and challenging the master to a duel. And he won, hands down, 60 duels. He tied once with the founder of the bow style. Uh, and the bow is a great weapon. I recommend it to everyone. It's a four-foot staff. The only time he lost was to a guy that had a four-foot stick. Wow. Um, but uh, he defeated all of these masters. But so you right away see, first of all, he's a great warrior, but also he's moving instinctive. For you to be able to master swordsmanship, um, this requires intense physical control and training. And then to use that to fight a duel to the death 60 times. Uh, listen, the guy had bigger balls than I did, I'll tell you. <laughs> but so you think, okay, he's this, this moving instinctive uh, master, but he was an artist. Mm -hmm. He was a painter. He, he painted in the traditional Japanese style called sume or sumi. And uh, there is a painting of him in the Japanese uh, Museum for the Arts of, uh, uh, and it's watercolors. Watercolors are really hard to work in because watercolors will not allow you to make a mistake. Oils, acrylics, you make a mistake, you paint over it. Watercolors, you could spend, you know, two days working on a painting and you make one mistake, you got to throw the thing out. You Ugh. can't fix it, right? And his famous painting called a Sh Shrike on a, on a Branch, the branch is painted with one 
stroke and that stroke is three foot long so the and it's perfect you know the control he had not only on the movement of his hand holding the brush down the paper but also the pressure that he put on the paper you put a little bit extra pressure on the paper and then the ink sinks more into the paper and creates a blot so for him to make that stroke with one hand in a single movement perfect shows you what his swordsman yeah it's incredible and it shows you what his swordsmanship was like that uh um, you know his sword strike would have been as perfect as his brush stroke but not only did he paint, he also was a wood carver, and he also designed and carved his own uh, tsuba, which is a ornamental uh, attachment to that goes in front of the hilt of a Japanese katana. So he would carve these and design these himself. And so now he's a warrior, but he's also training his emotional center through art. He's creating beauty and, you know, making things out of nothing and using his emotion into it. So now he's working the emotional center. But beyond that, too, he also wrote one of the seminal works on strategy, and that is the Book of Five Rings, which is his philosophy of life and swordsmanship, because the two go hand in hand. Uh, If you're a swordsman, you should also be a master of life. And he wrote in his book, The Book of Five Rings, he says, once you master one art, I can now master all the others. Because the principles are the same, whether it's painting or sword fighting or carving or philosophy, the creative energy needed to do these amazing acts and to create these amazing works are one in the same. It comes from your spirit. And he called his path, Hey Ho. And so now you see that, uh, that Musashi embodied Gurchev's work because he worked on all these centers and not only did he work on them, he mastered them. Now in Gurchev's philosophy, Before you can do anything, you first have to become what he calls a man number four. And a man number four is somebody who has worked on those three centers, who's developed his physicality, who's developed his emotional discipline, his EQ, if you like, right? Your emotional quotient. And who has trained and developed his mind to such a degree that he has mastery over those three centers. And then once you have mastery over those three centers, you become man number four. And only a man number four will have the will to do, right? You know, Gurdjieff always says, you don't, you don't have the will to do things. So what are we talking about? And I have a saying to people too, because they're always complaining, well, why can't people do this? And why don't they realize <laughs> that? And why don't they wake up this and that? I said, well, let me quote Gurdjieff. You're talking to a machine. So you're trying to wake people up and get them to have will and all that. It's like me talking to my toaster and saying, you must become a microwave. (laughs) I will teach you in the ways of microwave. (laughs) How can you be, you know, you're talking to machines. So, you know, the other thing is you can't get there from here. 
So can human beings win this war against evil? Yes, we can. And can human beings build a utopian society of happiness and freedom and love and caring? Yes, we can. But you can't get there from here. First, you have to become man number four. Man number four can do all those things, but you can't. And man number four is a warrior. That's really well said. And uh, I would definitely have to agree on all of this. I think uh, there's a story, Stefan. I don't know if this would be Musashi, but a story I really liked from Japan is you have the samurai. He's down the road. And I don't know if he meets another samurai or a bandit, but they're going to have a duel. And the second warrior spits in the face of the samurai and the samurai walks away and people are like oh what did he got scared what a pussy but what happened is the samurai had a code that he cannot strike out in anger so he had to go and meditate and calm his nerves down and then come back and fight the guy again so again this this stoicism is very important for gurdjieff or the way of the warrior do things beyond your emotions yeah, Stoicism is, is a great philosophy. A lot of people think it's a religion or something like that. It's not a religion. It's a tool. You know, as we go through life, we or you know, most of us, we gather tools into our repertoire. And so, you know, you, you have intellectual tools, you have emotional tools, you have physical tools that you use to navigate life and, and to become, you know, reasonably successful and happy and at least, you know, avoid danger and hardship and, and, and suffering. So stoicism is a tool. Martial arts is a tool. Playing a musical instrument is a tool. Painting is a tool. Reading books and philosophy and contemplating life, that's a tool. Um, learning oh, to survive. Say they're weapons. They are weapons too, right? Well, a weapon is a tool as well. Yeah, but I mean, reading is a, could be a weapon. All these things could be weapons in fights out there. They can all be weapons. Now, a warrior will know how to turn it into a weapon. Exactly. But even if you're not a warrior, it's still a tool for, you know, uh, negotiating life and, and getting through it. You know, again, we're not up on the mountain by ourselves reading a book. <laughs> we, we have to live with all the idiots we're surrounded with, you know. <laughs> all the machines. <laughs> all the machines that are around us. People ask me, how are you doing? I said, well, as well as can be expected, treading water in an ocean of madness. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, and Vance, do you have any questions for Stefan? Well, um, yeah. Uh, if you've got a whole world full of non, you know, uh, force type people, is it possible to transform the world without transforming every single person? I mean, you know, what, what, what do you do? You got a handful of warriors in, in an ocean of madness and how can there ever be a utopia under those circumstances? Well, yes and no, Vance. Because, listen, I, you know, I've been working, my most recent efforts are on trying to teach people how to work together and create communities for mutual aid and, and survival. And it's a big problem because, you, you know, we have to, yeah, they're, they're, they're machines. How, you know, it's like herding cats. <laughs> <You know? laughs> how am I, I going to get the world to join with me and rise up against the arconic new world order. Yeah. Herding cats. But the thing is, it, there is a good side to this. And that is those of us who are warriors, we need to be the leaders 
of the people. And, 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 and just like Sun Tzu said, um, a good general, you know, eats with his men, sleeps in the same conditions with his men, suffers the same hardships as his soldiers do. But one thing a general must never, ever do, and that is spoil his troops, he says, because once they're spoiled, they are useless for any practical purpose. And unfortunately, we live in a land of spoiled crybabies, and um, which is, you know, for the benefit of the rulers. Now, fourth way or men number four are those of us who seek to be warriors. We can still lead the machines. Listen, if I was in charge of the machinery of media, let's say I controlled all the TV stations, I would put on programming to the to such a, a quality and extent that by the time the average child reached the age of 12, they would already be able to pass two master's degree in medicine and in philosophy. I mean, the time kids spend in front of that goddamn TV set, <laughs> let's say they actually made medicine and science and history interesting. It's not interesting because they dumped it down on purpose and made it boring so that nobody would be interested in it. That was all done on purpose. The reason you don't like history is because they taught it that way. Now, if I could teach it in a way that is fascinating, and history is fascinating. Every story and plot line you've ever seen in a movie has been done a thousand times already in real life with real life consequences. So if I was in charge of the TV stations, um, everybody would have a, a medical degree by the time they reached 12. There's no reason why that couldn't be possible. The human brain is a sponge, and especially in the early years of our education, which is, you know, I personally find it a crime against humanity to send children to public school, and you know, that sucks the life out of them. Amen. It's, it's a crime against humanity because left to their own devices, children will learn on their own because of their natural curiosity and their desire to explore, explore ideas and thoughts and philosophies. That's been taken away from us. But if I was in charge, that's how... I would do it. I would, you know, if I was in charge of the educational system, that's how I would do it. Everybody would come out as close to a genius as possible, um, which, of course, isn't possible. But let's shoot for the for the highest goal. So those of us that are in this battle that are awake enough in, in a sort of a spiritual sense that have the, the spiritual courage and vitality, it's up to us to lead even the machines down a road towards their own betterment. You see, I will not manipulate you. And this is what I did when I was teaching martial arts too. Uh, I'm a real stinker. I, I'm sneaky. And I manipulated some of my students. I did. And I tricked them. I tricked them. But every time I manipulated them and tricked them, it was so that they would learn something they couldn't have learned any other way. So I cannot manipulate you to get 10 bucks out of you. I would never do it. I, I wouldn't manipulate you to in order for me to sleep with your wife or, you know, for some selfish reason, I will not use techniques that I know of manipulation and trickery. But if I need to trick you into learning a lesson that 
will improve you as a human being and make your life happier, then I will do that trick. So as, you know, men number four or as warriors, you know, sometimes have to trick the machines in order to make their lives better. And again, it's very tricky to do this because who are you to judge what would make their life better? Uh, it's it's not something I, I I would want to take do lightly without taking full responsibility for, but sometimes it works and it helps them. Yeah, if they come to you as a teacher, then that solves some of that problem, right? Because they're volunteering, presumably, to be you know have a leader. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example. I had uh, one of my students. He came to me when he was twelve years old. Nice kid, you know. He was morbidly obese and painfully shy. And uh, I didn't think he liked my Kung Fu class, you know, because he never spoke or anything like that. And um, a couple of months later, his parents came to me and said, can we talk to you? I'm thinking, oh, my God, he's going to drop out. He doesn't like it. Um, You know, I did my best with him, but, well, you know, you you can't win them all. And uh, they said, we just wanted to thank you so much for what you've done for Jason. I said, really? What? He loves the class. He's never felt better. And you know what it is? And I said, no. Well, what did I do? They said, you never once called him fat or pointed out that he was fat. Well, no, because you know what? I was fat as a kid, too, before I had my enlightenment experience and I changed my life. I was chubby as a kid, too, and I know what it's like growing up as a fat kid. You're always teased. Your self-esteem is in the toilet. There's not a day goes by that somebody doesn't say, oh, maybe somebody should go on a diet around here. You know, so you don't need it anymore. And what I did with Jason was, you know, I said to the class, everybody give me 10 push-ups. And if Jason gave me five push-ups, I'd go over to him and say, good job, Jason. You did five push-ups. That's all I expect from you. You're good. And next month you'll do 10. Anyways, flash, flash, flash forward 20 years. And I'm living in California and uh, up in Ojai. And I get an email from uh, Jason. He says, I'm coming to LA. I'm going to a personal trainer convention. I'd really like to drive, drop in and see how you're doing. So he went from being the painfully shy, morbidly obese 12-year-old boy becoming a the guy's cut the guy's a bodybuilder now wonderful right Mm -hmm. and what was the inspiration the inspiration was not ragging on him was not insulting him that's the inspiration you know do we really have to tease him do we really have to make him feel bad about himself i took him for who he was and that was fine with me you don't need to impress me and that was enough and without that pressure he on his own became a bodybuilder all right, so now I'm going to trick him. <laughs> oh, no, he says, I, I want to I come visit you. Now, anybody that knows me knows that I do not do the coffee shop thing. I don't go to a restaurant. <laughs> you cannot drag me to a coffee. Hey, I'd really like to take you out for coffee. No, 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 no. I'm not going to a coffee shop. If you want to talk to me, then meet me down by the lakeshore and uh, I'll bring the canoe. Then we can talk or uh, bring your bicycle and we're going to bicycle up into the mountains. And then we can talk. So Jason came over. I said, we're going up into the mountains. We went, we rented him a bicycle. And uh, up we went to, uh, up up into the mountains there in the Sierra Nevadas and uh, to a hidden amphitheater that I had discovered called Foster Bowl. Um, anyway, so they were talking and uh, 
there was a squirrel in the bushes making a lot of noise. And Jason was getting a little bit antsy. He says, what's that? What's that? Now, I had seen mountain lions there before. He says, oh, is that a mountain lion? I said, no, if it was a mountain lion, you wouldn't hear it. It's probably a squirrel. They make more noise than a mountain lion, right? It's a funny thing. Mountain lions and bears, it always amazes me. Like, for the size of those animals, you don't hear them crashing through the woods. No, no. It's the little squirrel that makes the noise. Now he's getting really nervous. He says, well, where are we? I don't know. How do we get back? I said, boy. (laughs) How do we get back to town? I said, oh, well, glad glad you mentioned that. He says, you know, because I'm no good with directions or maps or anything like that. I said, well, that's it. And you just gave me an idea for your next lesson. And he said, what's that? I said, you're going back alone. Oh, (laughs) I said, I'll follow an hour later. And if I find your mauled and partially eaten body along the way, I will alert your parents. But you're going home alone. And so that's what I did. And so he got on the bike and off he went to try and find his way back to the to to the town. So I'm playing a bit of a dirty trick on him. Right. Well, but the thing is, I he was saved. Right? No mountain lion was going to eat him. Was too big. <laughs> and it really wasn't difficult to get, find your way back. You basically follow the same path that we took up there. Right. Mm-hmm. So, OK, fast forward another 10 years. And I'm teaching by the lake here in Toronto. And I get an email from Jason. Oh, I hear you're teaching by the lake. I want to come down and visit you. Where are you? I said, I will be by the pyramid. That's all I'm saying. You have to figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) So sure enough, he found me. But from the time that I'd seen him in California to the time they came to visit me, he had taken a course in orienteering. He knew how to read a map. He knew how to read a compass and he could find his way around. So again, you know, I I did this trick, but in the end, he was better able to navigate the world for it. So that's what I mean. Sometimes you have to, you know, uh, throw them for a loop, play a little bit of a dirty trick on them. But if it helps them grow in their path, then I'm in favor of that. So that's one example of where I've, I've tricked people. I, I do that a lot. I sometimes will. I say, oh, guess what your lesson for today is? <laughs> well, you got to be partially a trickster, too. That's part exactly. Of being a to complete be human being. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think what's fascinating for the audience, for you heretics out there, there is uh, Stefan's book is fo- it's a really well-rounded, balanced book. He has again the, the history of martial arts, the philosophy. He has the lessons, a chapter on leadership. I mean, it is the the full menu of the way of the warrior, and even fascinating uh, again stories and legends from the east and even the west. So. It's it's really a, a great re- there's a lessons on meditation too there is there's uh, so much there and um so many of these stories struck out or jumped out at me for example uh my kids Stefan they take jiu-jitsu they've been doing that for a couple of years and I'm finally getting to understand it I have a good friend who does it and he says the philosophy is uh whatever they throw at you, you use that energy against them. And he's been able to apply it to his business, his work world, his right. business world has worked really well. I mean, he's been able, whatever, whatever negativity or bad things, the business world throws at him, he throws it right back. Um, 
But I, I love also the origin story of Tai Chi. I believe it was from Cheng Wangting, where he was out in the woods and he saw this serpent being attacked by a hawk. And the serpent was able to escape the hawk by using its coils and moving backwards and around and so forth to sort of confuse the hawk. And that struck me because at the end of the day, the way of the war is not always just attacking the first thing you see. No. <laughs> it's more of it's defense, it's uh, strategy, it's planning, it's moving, moving with the currents of life. Yes, yeah, moving with the currents of life, which is uh, what the Chinese call wu hui, and um, which is going with the flow, you know, it's what the Taoists, but it, it's, most people can't go with the flow. <laughs> <laughs> you you, you, you got to study this a little bit and you got to train in it. A lot of people that go with the flow will end up dashed on the rocks. Um, so, you know, the current can take you the wrong way. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's going with the flow and uh, it applies, yes, to all parts of life. For example, Sun Tzu's The Art of War was made famous by uh, James Clavel's novel, um, um, The Taipan. Have you oh, ever read yeah. that? Mm-hmm. It's a great yeah. book, you know. And all the characters are, you know, big business entrepreneurs and moguls and all that. And all they do is quote Sun Tzu all the time in their business negotiations <laughs> and in their dealings. And so, yeah, and jujitsu, you know, you take your enemy's strength and use it against them. And that's what we also need to do in our battle against the new world order. We have to take their strength and figure a way to turn it against them every time. Um so yeah absolutely the applications are there but it's also the origin stories that struck a tone with me because of the uh the origin stories all reflect a common theme and that theme is the spirit quest from shamanism right right the vision quest too isn't that it yeah the vision quest or the spirit quest and uh because they all reflect the same you know, the story elements are all the same for the origin stories for all these martial arts styles and, you know, the, the, the procedure of going on a vision quest, you know, they, they follow exactly the same, which gave me the suspicion that martial arts had its origins, certainly the Kung Fu styles had its origins from an even earlier shamanic tradition. And that shamanism kind of echoed through um uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 martial arts styles of the Far East, including the part, and I got into well, I didn't get into trouble, but I had some Christian groups want to quote me on that because they thought it was demon possession. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, they thought it was demon possession. But um, in investigating that, and especially the animal styles, you can tap into sort of an archetype, archetype. Right. And that archetype will give you energy. And that energy can be used in combat because it's very, very powerful. Now, I can explain this another way. This is a classical conditioning, using a little bit of visualization and, uh, 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 and mudras. Are you familiar with a mudra? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was doing those this morning in my meditation class. Exactly. So <laughs> the mudra is a way of initiating a state of mind. And in Kung Fu, the animal styles all have a specific hand position that acts like a mudra. Uh, 
So when you take your training, your visualization and the mudra, you can now tap in to one of the animal spirits. Now, it's not that some spirit takes over your body, but rather your body is imbued with the archetypical energy of that animal, of that spirit. So if I tap into tiger style, if I make the, the, the tiger claw hand formation, now again, it's behavioral conditioning. You know, I, I, I do the mudra and then I, you know, I do the visualization. I'm powerful. I'm strong. I'm angry. I'm going to rip your head off. And then you use the physical exercises, uh, exometric tension and uh, flexing and lowering your stance and getting grounded. And you do all that and you train yourself so that it's a conditioned response. Now, if I make the mudra, the conditioned response for me is to become very confident, very aggressive and very powerful. And that's your dragon style. Conversely, uh, the dragon style is all about awareness and focus and maintaining an invisible barrier around you. I know this sounds almost supernatural, but I've experienced it. And nothing I write about is ever based on what I've read. It's always based on what I've personally experienced and validated through real life. So there's no theory. I've done this. I know what it feels like. And so if I go into dragon style, there is a, a sort of an attitude. It's, it's a regal attitude. You are a master of everything around you. And I experimented this in many of my sparring matches. And I call it my impenetrable defense. And it, it's, it's you, you don't believe it until you see it. But I assume a certain posture, but it's more than just a posture. It's also the mudra, but also the mental approach that nothing can touch me. I have an invisible shield around me. And when I do that, everybody that I've sparred has stopped in their tracks. They, they don't know what to do. Wow. They can't seem to find an opening in which they could possibly attack because I can... My awareness is so encompassing, it acts as a barrier. You know, if they come at me with a front snap kick or a sliding kick or a hook kick or a punch or a jab or, or a leg dive, the thing is, I will see them coming as they're thinking about it. It's almost like ESP. You're so in tune with your opponent that the minute they think to do something, you already know what they're going to do. And they realize you know what they're going to do, and it freaks them out. <laughs> It freaks them out. It puts, it stops them in their track. They're like helpless. They don't know where, where to go. So again, these are examples of like a shamanistic energy that you can utilize. You can train and it's not, it's not scary. It's not mystical. It's really basic behavioral conditioning on your part, but it's a, it, it's a preconditioned response that you can use when you're in danger, when you need to stay safe and protect yourself or protect your loved ones. Now, I am going to use this conditioned response to go into this specific attitude, this mental attitude. And that mental attitude is going to be the one I need to be safe and succeed in this situation. We will have information on you, Stefan, on the show notes. But for those heretics out there listening to just audio, where can they find out more about you and your work and your books? 
Um, well, I guess uh, my website, it's chinastrategies.com. It's one word, has nothing to do with the communist country of China. I named it, I, I got the website after my first book came out, uh, China Strategies. So it's chinastrategies.com. I just threw everything on there. It's all up there. It's a big mishmash. Um, but again, when you look at it, you see again, all three centers I've got my art up there for my, I've got my writings up there. I got my Kung Fu up there. I got my music up there. So it's, you know, everything that I do, it's uploaded to that website. So chinastrategies.com. And um, my YouTube channel is Stefan, Stefan for stopping. So uh, that's where all my videos are. Awesome. Wonderful. Check it out. He's got a lot and I highly recommend his book. But uh, first of all, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company on this journey to the East and back. You bet, man. I'm going back to my tea house now. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for that question, Vance. It's a good thing I didn't have to come down there. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and well, Stefan, it's been an incredible uh, conversation and good luck with everything. And uh, we look forward to having you back in the future. Anytime. And uh, thank you guys for having me on. You're both wonderful. And like I said, I've been following you guys for a long time. Long time. Big fan of the show. Subscriber. And Thanks. Everything. Yeah. Thank you. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of our enlightening interview with Stefan. Every Gnostic is Kung Fu fighting. That Gnosis is fast as lightning. Eh, I couldn't help it. In our second part, Stefan will discuss useful techniques from Tai Chi. He'll proffer advice on what martial art or Eastern practice suits you better. I'll ask him if there are any martial arts movies he likes, or even thinks are authentic. And you know I asked him on tools on how to overcome fear, that mind killer. Stefan then tells us about how to defeat that wickedness in high places, and their Karens and Katamites in the establishment as well as why the non-aggressive principle of the libertarians is useless, and much more. So please support to get the full karate chop. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. Or you can now subscribe to the easy-to-use private RSS feed from Red Circle found in the show notes for less than $5 per month. And you'll get the last 200 shows in the podcast provider of your choice. And it takes Stripe, since many of you hate Patreon or PayPal. No matter where you subscribe, it will cost you about a buck per episode. And that's a deal of many lifetimes. Membership to AB Prime or Patreon mid-levels includes full access to more than 500 quality shows. You'll get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel. Even support in the form of some shekel donations to PayPal or the US mail really, really helps. 
There is also a link on the show notes if you want to donate via Stripe now. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wishlist if you want to help there. Finding Hermes is going strong, and so are our virtual Alexandria exclusive private meetings that include exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics, and a monthly intimate Q&A. If you want to understand and experience Gnosticism in its full impact and liberating secrets, become an official citizen of the virtual Alexandria. We've recently done presentations on Gnostic Dualism, the Gnostic Mary Magdalene, the secrets of the Serpent Gnostics, and sex magic and Gnosticism. Quite a variety, eh? Whew, I know that's a lot, but you know, I, I gotta stay spread out, as the Archons are always there to cancel my ass. I'm also on Rockfin and Odyssey, if crypto is your bag. If you need any help with these choices, just message me. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.